John Ellis Bush was not born in Florida, but he did at one point hope to make history in the state of Florida. In 200 years, no elected Florida governor has ever become the president of the United States. Plenty of other states have seen their governors move to the highest office in the land. 17 of the 45 individuals who have served as president of the United States were at one point the governor of a state. Quick sidebar, if you are confused when I said 45 individuals, that's because Grover Cleveland served as president twice on two non-consecutive terms, the 22nd and 24th presidencies, so technically he counts twice. So. We are currently in our 46th presidency with Joe Biden, but there have only been 45 people who have actually been president. So 17 of those 45 people were governors of a state at one point. That goes back as far as Thomas Jefferson, the third president, who is previously the governor of Virginia. Virginia would produce three governors turned president. New York would produce four, Tennessee two, same for Ohio. Massachusetts, Georgia, New Jersey, California, Arkansas, and Texas would all generate one each. Bonus points for any of you who can name the presidents of those one-off states, especially those last three, the most obvious ones. Ronald Reagan was once governor of California, Bill Clinton for Arkansas, and George W. Bush was the governor of Texas before becoming president in 2000. His brother, the aforementioned John Ellis Bush, both sons of another president, George H.W. Bush. John has a nickname that most know him by. If you're confused when I refer to him as John Ellis Bush, you probably know him better as Jeb. If you take his three initials, John Ellis Bush, you get Jeb. And like I said, Jeb wanted to make history. Born in Midland, Texas in 1953, Jeb was born in the next generation of the hugely successful political family, the Bushes of Texas. His grandfather, Prescott S. Bush, was a senator, and Jeb's father would go on to be vice president under Ronald Reagan and eventually succeed Reagan as president from 1988 to 1992. In 1980, when George H.W. Bush ran for vice president with Reagan, Jeb helped. Once the election was over, Jeb moved to Florida, where he became a real estate developer for a number of years. He would take up positions in Florida politics throughout the 80s, quote, serving as the chairman of the Republican Party in Dade County, 1984 to 1986, and as Florida's Commerce Secretary from 1987 to 1988, end quote. He would return to politics to help his father run for president and found himself seeking higher office at the state level as the 90s rolled around. He ran for governor of Florida in 1994, quote, opposing same-sex marriage and abortion rights while supporting capital punishment, welfare reform, and the privatization of various government sectors, end quote. He narrowly lost to Lawton Childs, the incumbent Democrat. Lawton won so narrowly because he had made a critical misstep with Democratic voters. He cut funding to education in the state. Interestingly, the next year, Jeb Bush would found the Foundation for Florida's Future, a nonprofit that is designed to support education in the state of Florida to this day. When the opportunity came for the governorship again, Jeb took another shot, and this time, he won. In 1998, Jeb ran again and easily won it through a fascinating campaign that we will genuinely have to talk about another time. But Jeb won by 11 points, a huge victory for the Republicans. A Democrat has not won an election for governor of Florida since Lawton Childs' victory in 1994. Jeb was the start of a new era. It was a tumultuous tenure for Jeb as governor. His brother would soon win the presidency through a controversial election cycle that critically included Florida in the controversy, hanging chads, if you've heard of them. Nevertheless, after becoming governor, quote, he oversaw education reform and tax cuts, and he supported an environmental conservation program to protect the Everglades, end quote. 
That bit about the Everglades is also quite a story. Maybe we should just do an entire season or a couple episodes on Jeb Bush's ascent to the governorship and his term as governor. He's a very interesting person and it's too large to ignore it entirely, so we'll talk about it sometime. Jeb would be reelected in 2002 and serve out his term until 2007 when Charlie Crist took over the governorship. Years would pass, and as President Barack Obama would be ending his term as president in 2016, a clamor of candidates rushed to see who could take over the vacancy on the horizon. Many, many Republicans joined the field, including Jeb, who notably launched his campaign logo that was simple. I bet you remember it if you were aware of politics at that time. His name, Jeb, with an unusual exclamation point at the end, as if the logo was designed to tell you how to say it. Like, Jeb, with an exclamation point. The campaign did not run smoothly. Other frontrunners surged ahead, including Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Jeb's campaign failed to build momentum, and he frequently embarrassed himself at stops on the campaign tour. At one point, in a pretty infamous clip, Jeb makes a brief declarative statement about foreign policy. Clearly, he expected a positive response from the assembled crowd after the statement was concluded, but there was not. It was quiet in the room. In a bashful, halfway-joking tone, Jeb requested the crowd to clap. Literally, he said... Please clap. Look it up. It went viral immediately and tanked what was left of his campaign. It was embarrassing. It makes me cringe just watching it now. That was February of 2016. He suspended his run for president that very same month. He would not become the first elected governor of Florida to become president. But note an important word in that statement, elected. Florida has never had an elected governor who went on to become president. Florida has had a governor become president in the past, though he was not elected. He was a military governor, an infamous figure in Florida's history, our very first governor. Sort of. We talked last November about our first elected governor, William Dunn Mosley, elected in 1845. But that was after Florida became a state. 24 years earlier, in 1821, then-President of the United States James Monroe would tap a war hero for the position known then as Federal Military Commissioner of Florida, the Territorial Governor of Florida. That man would only serve that position for a few months, but by the end of the decade, he would become the seventh President of the United States. That man is Andrew Jackson. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the governor who would be president, how Andrew Jackson became the first sort of governor of Florida, how that sort of governor became president, and what that can teach us about the politics of 200 years ago. If somehow you don't know this, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is seeking to become the Republican candidate for the presidency, hoping to beat out a tide of other Republican candidates, including former President Donald Trump. Their hope is to beat out our current president, Democrat Joe Biden, in the 2024 election, still over a year away. But with more candidates entering the race and Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign struggling to gain ground in a contentious race, I thought now would be a good time to check in on the history that he's facing. No elected Florida governor has ever made it to the presidency. Only Jackson carries both titles, and his path to both was not smooth. A footnote. Andrew Jackson is actually not included in those 17 governors that I mentioned up at the top because he was a territorial governor. If you include territorial governors and the remaining 17 governors, that would actually total 20 governors who went on to become president of the United States, though three of them were territorial governors, including Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was born in South Carolina in 1767, eight years before the American Revolution began in the 13 colonies of the United States. 
We don't entirely know where in the Carolinas he was born, and, quote, both states have claimed him as a native son, end quote, though South Carolina appears to be the best bet. He grew up in war, as the Brits came to Carolina and took it over in the midst of the American Revolution. He was a defiant teenager and apparently was arrested. He was openly defiant of the British rule in the Carolinas. He lost much of his family during that time, including his mother. Once the war was over, he became a lawyer, prosecutor in the frontier towns west of the Appalachians in the late 18th century. He helped draft the Constitution of Tennessee and became the first federal representative for that new state, then became a senator, then he became a judge. Before the age of 40 and before the turn of that century, Jackson had been a lawyer, a representative, a senator, and a judge, a huge leader in the state politics in those frontier years of the United States. He would turn 45 in 1812 when a second conflict between the United States and their former ruler, Great Britain, broke out. Jackson was in the Tennessee militia for a number of years in the early 1800s, and when war came knocking, Jackson was in position to go, a leader that people very clearly were looking to in a time of crisis. We've talked about the War of 1812 in the past. A lot of how Florida became a territory of the United States is directly related to the War of 1812. Maybe we should do a breakdown of the War of 1812 again sometime, but this was a turning point for Andrew Jackson. It really elevated his public profile. The Creek Indians had become allies of the British during this conflict, and Jackson led a massive fight against the Creeks, which he would win, the first of many conflicts with the native people of this country that Jackson would be the face of. In a fascinating story, which we have talked about, I'll include a link to that episode in the description of this episode so you can give it a listen, but Jackson led an invasion into the city of Mobile, which was once part of West Florida, though now you know it as Mobile, Alabama, but back then it was West Florida. This set him up for his greatest victory of all. At the end of 1814, Jackson led a march into New Orleans where the British had fled. The Battle of New Orleans was fought on January 8, 1815. Quote, Jackson's forces inflicted a decisive defeat upon the British army and forced it to withdraw. End quote. A treaty had already been struck between the two forces, but Jackson's victory was profound. It made him a hero of the American military out of nowhere. The political figure had become a military hero, and the rest would soon be history. But that was just the beginning of Jackson's relationship with Florida. He had, obviously, these military conflicts during the War of 1812, but soon after that war was over, he did something uh, illegal, which we've talked about on this show. He essentially invaded Florida while the Spanish still ruled the state. It was deemed illegal, which prompted President James Monroe to have to go all in on the peninsula. With the conflicts between Spain, England, and the U.S. reaching new conclusions as the various wars that were happening at this time came to a close, Spain was starting to lose its footholds in North America and the New World, and Florida would need to become an official territory sooner rather than later. So he made the decision. He would take Florida from Spain in an agreement where Spain would essentially hand it over to Florida, even though Jackson had already invaded, which was pretty much the final nail in that coffin. But there were other problems. The economy of the country was struggling after the War of 1812. The military in particular needed to be trimmed down. James Monroe couldn't find an answer and the military had to take that cut. Jackson, who was now over 50, was out of the picture. He was forcibly retired by President Monroe. Clearly, based on Jackson's reputation of a difficult personality, Monroe needed to do something to soothe Jackson's distaste with that decision, so he gave Jackson a title, Territorial Governor of Florida. That was 1821. 
Jackson's family was living in Pensacola, and his troops had taken up a semi-permanent residence there. Florida was on the path to being transferred to the U.S. from Spain. The only problem was crossing the T's and dotting the I's. The Spanish governor, Jose Cavalla, was there to settle the deal despite the language barrier between Jackson and the governor. There were many delays before it was all settled. Travel delays, document delays, but finally the documents were signed. The deal was finalized on July 17, 1821. The 222nd anniversary was actually just two weeks ago from today on July 17th. The Spanish residents of Florida had been growing nervous as more Americans began arriving to the state following the lead of their hero, Andrew Jackson. To make matters worse, the Spanish governor inexplicably stuck around in Florida after the deal was official, which seemed to really irritate the brash Andrew Jackson. He got the deal done, which meant he could be the territorial governor. But Jackson had other things on his mind. Quote, One of Jackson's motivations for taking the position of territorial governor was to get appointments for his friends and colleagues to allow them to take advantage of land speculation and business growth opportunities, end quote. But Jackson was unable to take advantage of the opportunities that this position granted him because Monroe did not let him choose his own friends to get these positions. He appointed the people to the positions without consulting with Jackson, and that seemed to tick him off. Jackson was clearly at odds with the position. It was a real hassle to get the deal signed with the Spanish governor. Now he couldn't get his friends some opportunities and appointments, so Jackson was over it pretty quickly. This home in Pensacola in Florida was always meant to be temporary, a place to advance his position. Quote, Jackson accepted the office only on the condition that he could resign as soon as the territorial government was organized. End quote. The whole thing for Jackson was a disaster, starting with an unplanned invasion and ending with bureaucracy cutting short his plans. His departure from Florida was not in good spirits. He arrived and settled the deal with the Spanish in July of 1821. Before September, he'd be back in Tennessee, and by November, he had formally resigned. Less than six months did Andrew Jackson serve as the governor of Florida. So take all that in mind when we talk about him being the first. It wasn't exactly a position he took to heart. It was a brief one, basically only to advance his position and career as he moved on from the War of 1812 and his career in the military. William Pope Duval would move to Florida in 1822, and he would be the territorial governor by April of that year, a position he would retain for 12 years. The next decade would prove vital to Jackson's life. By the end of it, he would be the president. It would also prove transformative to the politics of this nation. You see, there had been five presidents at this point, and all five of them were founding fathers during the American Revolution. George Washington was the first, then John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. Now, the founding fathers were, frankly, old or dead, and a new generation of leaders needed to emerge. Fittingly, the sixth president would literally be the son of a former president, the son of a founding father, John Quincy Adams, eldest son of second president John Adams. He was a Democratic Republican who ran against three other candidates from the exact same party, William H. Crawford of Georgia, Henry Clay of Kentucky, and Andrew Jackson. Jackson was not a typical choice for president, especially at that time. This is a quote from an article called Andrew Jackson, Campaigns and Elections by Daniel Feller. Link in the episode description. Daniel writes, quote, Where all presidents since Washington had served extensive administrative and diplomatic apprenticeships, Jackson had never held a cabinet post or even been abroad. He spoke no foreign languages and even wrote English roughly. On the other hand, his heroics as a general had a far greater hold on the public imagination than the governmental experience of his competitors, end quote. 
So even though the gruff persona of Jackson wasn't exactly typical for the presidency at that time, it was a new age, a new century, and those who supported Jackson believed that he was a man who could lead them, quite literally, into a new frontier. The vote in 1824 was held over the course of a few weeks, from late October to early December. The electoral votes led to a draw, but the popular vote was in Andrew Jackson's favor, but that was not enough. The electoral votes didn't quite have a conclusive result. Congress had to decide. The House of Representatives voted for president, and John Quincy Adams won. But there was some controversy surrounding Adams' rise to power. Clearly, there was corruption in the eyes of those who had supported Andrew Jackson because Quincy Adams' friend, Henry Clay, who was a candidate in the election, though he did not get the appropriate amount of electoral votes, Henry Clay, Adams' friend, was the one who seemingly allowed Adams to become president, especially in the eyes of Jackson's supporters. There was some truth to their complaint. Henry Clay was not up to be elected by the House of Representatives because he did not get enough electoral votes, and he and Adams agreed to essentially support Adams. Clay essentially had everybody who supported him support Adams. He sort of pulled the right strings to allow Adams to receive the appropriate votes in the House of Representatives. So it was shady in a sense, but it wasn't necessarily illegal, I think. It was more politicking at the time that allowed Henry Clay to influence the House of Representatives to vote for John Quincy Adams. And that rubbed Jacksonian supporters the wrong way. They called the election a fraud and began planning for 1828 when Andrew Jackson would get another chance. By the time the 1828 election would come around, Adams and Jackson were not even on the same party anymore. Despite the advice of George Washington, who years earlier warned against political party fracturing, the Democratic-Republicans split into two groups. John Quincy Adams was now a Republican, and Andrew Jackson was a Democrat. Well, technically, John Quincy Adams was a national Republican, but you get it. This was really a fracturing of these parties, and it left a huge impact, obviously, to this very day. The reason that these parties fractured in the first place was actually because of Andrew Jackson. He was no fan of Adams or how he became president. It was, in some part, an us or them situation. If you supported Jackson, you're a Democrat now. The end. This became known as Jacksonian democracy, an extremely fascinating period of American history that maybe we'll dive into sometime in the future. But I recommend looking up a lot of how Jackson sort of used his cult of personality to form the Democratic Party around his beliefs and around his rise to power. It's very, very interesting. But let's skip to 1828. There was no love lost between Adams and Jackson in the years between the two elections, and everybody knew it. The two men were the same age. By the time of the 1828 election, they were both in their 61st year. The story of the campaign between these two men is a typical story that has been repeated throughout American history of two men from different backgrounds facing off for the highest office. Think of Nixon versus Kennedy in 1960. That was a conflict between a privileged, educated man and a working class leader. In the eyes of the voting public in 1828, it was exactly the same. Jackson grew up in the war-torn Carolinas, was a militiaman who then became a war hero, while Adams was the son of a founding father traveling Europe with John Adams throughout his teenage years. Adams was considered an elitist. Jackson was considered a man of the people. Their differences were profound, and the campaign was about to get ugly. Most accounts of the 1828 election refer to the nasty quality of the respective campaigns, referring to a practice at the time called, quote-unquote, 
mudslinging. This is the practice of trashing the reputation of your political opponent through ugly truths, convenient half-truths, and occasional flat-out lies. It was uncommon practice at that time, which is quaint considering the sort of mud that is slung in politics nowadays. The accusations and rumors that were hurled between Adams and Jackson were no joke, and it just got nastier as the campaigns heated up. The stories I'm about to tell you of this dirty campaign feel let's say mild in today's climate. Personal attacks and low blows against political adversaries is par for the course in today's politics. And even that is kind of an understatement. It's, it's, it's a huge part of our lives is just straight up a politician saying horrible things about another politician and without any fact checking, most of us just accept those things as true. The election of 1828 would involve personal insults, attacks on the loved ones of candidates, and even definitive ends of personal and professional relationships. The split in the party is one part of that. Those who supported Jackson had notable issue with Henry Clay, as I mentioned, a friend of Adams who helped him get the job as president. Henry Clay would eventually be selected as Adams' secretary of state. The Jacksonian Democrats were not too keen on that sort of insider dealing. If Clay helped Quincy become president and then Quincy put Clay up for a position, that felt to them like it was sort of handshake behind closed doors dealings that felt a little dirty to Jacksonian supporters. In a response to the accusations of dirty dealings, Adams began pointing a finger back at Jackson. Jackson's wife, Rachel, was accused of adultery because the divorce from her first marriage was not finalized when Andrew and Rachel were married. Jackson himself was also accused of adultery during his marriage to Rachel, sort of extramarital affairs as well. It was a devastating ordeal for Rachel Adams, who would become ill and would die soon after the 1828 election. Jackson never forgot the humiliation his wife faced. He said at Rachel's funeral, quote, I forgive all my enemies, but those vile wretches who have slandered her must look to God for mercy, end quote. What's extremely fascinating to me about this mudslinging practice is how these rumors were spread. Nowadays, the battlegrounds of political campaigns are entirely digital, social media being the place where politicians can go viral for just a sentence being spoken at a rally for anything. But this was nearly 200 years ago, and the distribution of these rumors and allegations toward both politicians was entirely paper-based. Supporters of Andrew Jackson started outwardly biased newspapers celebrating the victories and successes of their folk hero candidate and spreading their opinion about the corrupt system that they saw put John Quincy Adams into the presidency. Quincy's camp had a different method and it's pretty brutal. They are referred to as coffin handbills, which is a pretty metal name if you think about it, but it's an accurate name for what they were. They are referred to as coffin handbills because they included images of coffins right along the top. The most famous had six coffins right across the top of the document. These six coffins referred to six militiamen who Jackson allegedly executed for mutiny back in the War of 1812. Jackson was known for being a pretty draconian leader, dealing out punishments that were notably cruel and severe. In particular, the treatment of the persons that he and his family enslaved was notably egregious. I won't get into the details of it this week, though we will at some point talk about the enslaved persons that Jackson hurt. They are stomach-churning details, to say the least. This was true as well while he was a military leader. In 1814, a number of soldiers were considering desertion as the war dragged on. These six men were then court-martialed by the order of General Andrew Jackson for their crimes, with desertion being akin to mutiny. 
It came to a head a few months later. Quote, his six mutineers were shot kneeling on their coffins before 1,500 troops in Mobile, Alabama on February 21st, 1815. End quote. I want to correct that source, actually. That, that document that I'm pulling this from, I'll include a link in the episode description so you can read about the entire escapade of these men that were executed. But it says Mobile, Alabama in 1815. Mobile was in West Florida. Just a slight correction for the record. But this wasn't an isolated incident. Jackson would punish, sometimes with death, soldiers under his command throughout his military career. They also pointed out in these coffin handbills that his brutality extended to enemies as well, where that bloodthirsty habit made him a hero to the American public. But at what cost? In the mind of the Adams campaign, they were accusing Jackson of being a barbarian, rather than the noble hero that he was made up to be. The coffin handbills had those notable six at the top, but more handbills would focus on the life and career of the men killed by Jackson or killed on the order of Jackson, insinuating their general innocence and highlighting the cruel punishment by Jackson. Some of these handbills would just have tons of coffins on them. There would be the six at the top and then a line of like a dozen more from another incident of men that they were accusing Jackson of having murdered. It was a pretty intense political campaign, basically saying the blood of these men is on the hands of Andrew Jackson. It was through these pamphlets that the slanderous statements about Rachel Jackson were distributed as well, and there were other accusations of Jackson's apparent bloodthirsty habits, including an insane accusation of Jackson apparently literally eating bodies of people he had killed in a battle. Obviously, that part is false. That That, that is not true. There were politicians who were literally saying that Jackson ate people, but... That seems to be based on a joke that Jackson had made. I'm not entirely sure, but it's ugly. It's, it's very ugly. It was in the war of public opinion now, and Jackson had to retort. He was being called a, a cannibal, so he retorted in kind. John Quincy Adams found himself being accused of his own crimes. You see, Adams had once been the American ambassador to Russia, and Jackson accused Adams of acquiring a young woman for Tsar Alexander I for the Tsar's own sexual gratification. This doesn't appear to be true, uh, an exaggeration of the truth, perhaps, but again, it's an ugly accusation to throw, quote, along with another accusation that Adams built a billiards table for the White House using taxpayer money, end quote. So let's tally up all these accusations, adultery, cannibalism, sexual favors, butchery, conspiracy, and misuse of public funds. That is some ugly, ugly stuff. Only a handful of these pamphlets still exist, around 30, but the legacy of their purpose in these campaigns remains. Mudslinging and the coffin pamphlets were just the beginning of how our politicians would treat the run for the presidency. Jackson won 55% of the vote, a devastating loss for John Quincy Adams, and a huge sea change for the country at large. For the first time, neither a founding father nor the son of a founding father was president. The newly divided political system in the United States seemed to strongly favor these Jacksonian Democrats, and Jackson would serve two terms as president, the first and only leader from the state of Florida to serve as the commander-in-chief. But John Quincy Adams' accusations throughout his campaign, though occasionally unfounded, would prove somewhat prophetic. Adams accused Jackson of butchery, barbarism, and cruelty, especially to the native peoples of this country. This would prove frighteningly accurate, as Jackson's legacy to this day is that of scandal and genocide. John Quincy Adams considered retirement. He was in his 60s now, out of the presidency, and unsure of what his future held. 
1830, however, he would become a member of the House of Representatives, one of only two presidents to serve in Congress after serving as president. The other was Andrew Johnson. Adams would remain a member of Congress for 18 years after he served as president, becoming an outspoken advocate for the opposition of slavery in the 1830s and a fervent advocate for the establishment of the Smithsonian Institute. He died after collapsing during a vote in Congress at the age of 80. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was voting in Congress when he collapsed and died two days later. Pretty remarkable. A remarkable life, to say the least. He is a fascinating figure, though. He doesn't have much of a connection to Florida, so we don't really have time to talk about him more, but I feel it's due noting an interesting figure in the form of John Quincy Adams. He was a continued opponent of Andrew Jackson throughout the remaining years of Jackson's presidency as Quincy Adams served in the House of Representatives. John Quincy Adams, fascinating figure from beginning to end. As for Andrew Jackson, we have so much more to discuss about him. This is not the last time we will speak about the man known as Old Hickory. I have long wanted to talk about him in depth on this show. I kind of wanted to do a whole mini-series on him this summer, but I had to delay those plans because there's a lot to talk about in the state of Florida, current events that we had to focus on, but I feel like I would be remiss to not talk about Andrew Jackson. There is so much to discuss, and this is just the beginning. His time in Florida and his time as president is intrinsic to the history of this state and this country. So rest assured, we will spend a good long while on Andrew Jackson over the next few years of this show. I feel like I haven't gotten to properly focus in on him, and now I think is the beginning of that. You know, last week was the five-year anniversary of this show, and I think a new project that the show is going to take on is who exactly was Andrew Jackson. We may never run out of things to discuss. His life was vast, and the impacts of his career last long after his death. But for now, it's important to note this turning point in his career. For a moment, he was Florida's leader, and it gave him an opportunity for political leadership that would lead him straight to the presidency, where he would change the fabric of our country forever. No one has followed him in those footsteps. Some have suspected that Governor Ron DeSantis could be the second, but only time will tell. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. We're going to talk about DeSantis's campaign for president because it has been a fascinating one, to say the least. But for now, for better or for worse, the only Florida governor turned president, the only man who has carried both of those titles, is Andrew Jackson. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you enjoyed this episode, if you love a good old-fashioned dive into history, please give the show five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share it with a friend. I know that there are people who love hearing these deep dives into history. I certainly love writing them. It fascinates me to know. And if you know someone who loves this sort of stuff, send it along to them. I'm sure they will enjoy the listen, and I will greatly appreciate that. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod. You can also send the show an email at wfmpod at gmail.com i look forward to hearing from you i'll include some links in the episode description to the research i got on andrew jackson including a link where you can check out the coffin handbills i highly recommend you give them a look they are fascinating it's amazing that these these artifacts exist so we can look at them and, and see how deliberate and macabre these images are so go give those a look and, and give a read to learn even more about andrew jackson and his fascinating campaign for president in 1828 all right, I will be back at you next week with a very special episode. It is August, and we are going to dive into a very important topic. We're going to talk about Reedy Creek, which is the area around Walt Disney World and the 
interesting, complex legal battle that the state of Florida is in with Reedy Creek. I'm sure you have a lot of questions about that topic. I'm sure you've seen news reports about it and not quite known what's going on. Well, I'm going to dig into that topic piece by piece to give you a breakdown of everything that's going on there so you can be more informed on that very, very important topic. We're going to talk about that and Governor DeSantis' campaign for the presidency so far. That is all next week on August 7th. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go gator and muddy the water. See you next Monday.